0: When you read James, you get the sense that he's responding to an emergency. There's no thanksgiving. There's no personal notes. No, this is how me and the rest have been. James jumps immediately into the heart of matter, writing in verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that sounds pretty backwards to us, right? Right? Because I don't like trials. I don't like doing hard things. Life has been designed to be easy these days. I don't need to go to the theater anymore. I have the world's knowledge in my pocket. I can maintain my social relationships by clicking a thumbs up button on their picture. I mean, I have Bible software, so I don't even have to pick up books anymore. We like easy things. So we find it hard to understand why anyone would be rejoicing in life's difficulties. And life was really difficult for the Christians that James wrote to. Within the letter, we get hints that the trials faced by these Christians were often a struggle of rich oppressors versus poorer Christians. Among the trials faced by these brothers would have been poverty, discrimination, and oppression. But how do I deal with getting laid off from work? How do I keep up with inflation and rising home costs? How do I maintain holy living in the face of a godless culture? And why would I rejoice in any of these tragedies? Well, the first thing we need to get through the trials is the knowledge of how to get through them. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. It's important to have James' concept of what wisdom is here. Understood against his Jewish background, wisdom is a down-to-earth kind of quality. It's being skilled in something. We read of people in the Old Testament being wise in craftsmanship. Stone cutting, construction, even sewing. Wisdom isn't something that just lives in the head. It finds its expression through our works. So what kind of skill or wisdom is going to get us through the trials in our lives? Well, you look a bit further on in the letter in James chapter 3 verse 17. And the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And I got to say, these aren't very natural responses when undergoing stress. I don't want to be gentle with oppressors. I don't want to reason with anyone mocking me. I don't want to show mercy to people who have none for me. And I certainly don't always feel sincere when I say, yes, all is forgiven. So we're going to need some help from God to do all of that. If we want to be skilled in facing trials, we need to pray to our gracious God who is excited to give it away. Again, in verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. That idea of generously and without reproach, well, there are no hoops to jump through, no great feats that need to be accomplished. All you need to do is put in the simple request for God and his wisdom. And when you do, there isn't any eye rolling from him. He gives without reproach. God knows that wisdom can only be found with him, and he doesn't blame us for coming to find it. We often think that wisdom needs to be hunted down in obscure tomes long forgotten, meditated on for years in isolation, or found in simple phrases with deep and hidden meanings. But God's simply holding it out to us, saying, Here it is. Take it. And it's so obvious that we skip right over it, having it hidden in plain sight. But James conditions this request for wisdom in verses 6 through 8. He says, Let him ask in faith, with no doubting, The one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We demonstrate doubt when we can't decide if we're going to follow God's wisdom or somebody else's. The one who doubts is like the rough waters of the sea. The tide comes in, the tide goes out, never sitting in one place, but always running back and forth. And here we go in our trials. Wanting God to help us, but then we don't like his answers, so we go running for something different, and a constant back and forth. All the wisdom in the world isn't going to help us if we never commit ourselves to God's wisdom. Now second, we also need to make sure that we're putting our faith in God to pass the trials, and nothing else. Verses 9-11, through 11, we have the fates of the lowly and the rich being compared. And James says that the lowly are going to be exalted, while the rich fade away. And that doesn't sound right to most people. I personally have a lot of problems, and just about all of them can be solved with money. If a ton of money can eliminate any possible trial that I might face, why bother looking to God for help? Well James tells us that that strategy isn't going to work out in the long run. The rich are going to fade away in the midst of their pursuits. Now anytime James mentions the rich in his letter, it's always going to be from a negative light. Now, Scripture does mention faithful men who had money. For example, Zacchaeus was a wee little man with a big bank account that he used to honor God and to love his neighbor. But more often than not, Scripture portrays the rich as prone to pride, selfishness, and oppression. The rich that James has in mind had put all of their trust in wealth and none in God. And so he says that all of them and their toys are going to be like dead flowers one day being thrown into the fire. The same end is coming for anyone. Who trusts in their wealth to make them secure. As their riches burn at the end of all things, too many people are going to jump into the fire after them. But in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So the trials that take money, pride, family, lives, all of it, are to be seen as a means of gain. If we're going to make it through the trials, we need to remember that there's only one way out. Put your trust in God, no matter what the cost is. And in all of our trials, it's important not to blame God. Verse 13 Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. One of the temptations in a trial is to assume that God is the one responsible for all the miserable things happening. Trials and disaster can make us very bitter. We're told that God loves us, but we don't feel it. We're told that God is good, but we're only receiving evil. And we're told that God is just, but then why is all this happening to me? Well, James tells us not to be deceived into thinking that God is anything different from what we actually read of in Scripture. Don't be deceived into thinking that he's abandoned you. Don't be deceived into forsaking him in search of better options. Don't be deceived that the trials and temptations that we face are some sort of sign of great displeasure from God. No matter what trials we face, God is still there to help you. He's called the father of lights who never moves, just like the North Star, always guiding us. Instead, we need to remember that the temptations we face are born out of our own desires. That's what drags us away from God. Temptations work like a fishing hook. Few fish are interested in just a naked hook, so we use a bait allure. We dress it up, let it dance around in the water for a little bit, hide that hook as best as possible. Our desires disguise themselves in a way to hide the hook. What looks so wonderful leads to sin, and that sin grabs us like a hook in the mouth and drags us away to death. It's not God who does that. It's our own desires that drag us away. God doesn't want us to sin, and he is never going to do anything that makes us sin He wants us to resist that temptation and to make it through the trials unblemished. Now in verse 19, we have a shift in focus towards the believer's faith. It's one thing to say that we believe in God, but how is that faith demonstrated or proved? We can say that we have faith, but if we're always shifting back and forth between God and the ways of the world, can we claim any kind of faith at all? Verses 19-21 through 21 warn us to put away our anger, our filthiness, and our rampant wickedness, and to instead receive the word of God. But don't just be content with a life that hears the word of God. Strive to do what it says. This is James' concern in verses 22-25. through 25. If all we do is listen to the word of God without doing anything to put it into practice, then we've deceived ourselves. We've deceived ourselves into thinking that this is enough that showing up and listening is all there is to being a follower of Jesus. Anybody who shows up to church or reads their Bible without changing their life is like one who looks in the mirror, sees what kind of mess they are, but does nothing about it. Imagine waking up in the morning, taking a look in the mirror, and seeing your unkempt hair, eye boogers, drool, dried, and crusted. You even have some dinner scraps from last night stuck to your face. And you think, wow, what a mess. And then you head out to work without doing anything about it. So someone says, hey, you didn't brush your hair. And you go, thanks. Will you pray about it? You go to a small group study and everyone says the same thing. You go, yes, I'm aware. Will you just pray for me, please? Meanwhile, they're just thinking, just do it. Fix it. But that's hard work. That's what hearing the word without doing it is like. So we need to instead to look intently at the law of liberty in verse 25 and persevere in it. Calling the law the law of liberty is not typically what we think of when we think of laws. Laws are restrictive. It's all about confining myself to a set of approved behaviors, forbidding me from others. It's a bunch of do's and do nots. But laws give such incredible freedom. For example, if you ever happen to go to the Philippines, you're going to be in a shock when you start driving around. Because as much as I have driving laws, everybody else treats them like driving suggestions. They'll take a two-lane road and treat it like there were six. Motorcycles are darting in and out of traffic, one bike carrying an entire family, and people are just casually walking through the major roadways. And overall, it's a pretty stressful environment to drive through. Now you could say that there's a lot of liberty on the roads of Manila. You're not likely to get a ticket, but it's also incredibly restrictive. Because with how stressful it is to drive around, I'd rather just stay home. All of that liberty to drive however I want, but the lack of law keeps me from growing out my front door. Meanwhile, here in America, I worry about going 26 down my residential roads. I'm not free to do what I want, but in return, I feel in a lot safer and I'm much more willing to get out and drive around. God's law works in a similar way. One way we're deceived into not doing the law is listening to the lie that following God is just a horribly boring way to live. We think that by looking at the law, we're binding ourselves to it and restricting ourselves. But James says that by following the law, we're going to experience greater freedom. Freedom from all the horrible things that sin hides when promising to fulfill our desires. We conclude our reading today with James 1, 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction And to keep oneself unstained from the world. We think we're religious, but if all we can do is complain about persecution and trials, or deceive ourselves into thinking we're doing fine by doing nothing of what we hear, then our religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion is about action, it's about showing mercy to the weakest members of society. In the days of James, that meant widows and orphans. Pure and undefiled religion means putting a stop to the influence of the world and striving for God's perfection. It's not an easy thing to do, but God has promised to help us attain it. So don't just listen to the warning. Do something about it.